Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. Hello and welcome to our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Live Discord Interactive Podcast. This podcast aims to cover the burning topics related to all threat hunting and security stuff that hopefully everyone wants to know about. Just a reminder, throughout the podcast, we'll be taking comments and questions from our Discord server. If you want to participate, make sure to sign up using the link in the welcome message. A few introductions. I'm Scott Poley. Uh, you can find out things about me through my LinkedIn page. Just do a bunch of different security stuff, and then I'll hand it over to you, Mike, and then Lee to introduce yourselves. Yep, I'm Mike. Same thing, the background's on LinkedIn, but yeah, happy to work with these guys on a day-to-day basis. Lee? Yep, same thing. Lee Arkinall, find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Mastodon, wherever social is. I just like to post about cybersecurity, like to talk about it. And I guess that's why we're here. Cool. Yeah, so just so everyone knows, every episode we feature a cocktail recipe made by our team. So give it a try and your feedback. This episode's recipe is the Ransom Note Martini. Um, which you'll see kind of in the show notes. So with that, um, we usually kick this off with uh, diving into three interesting artifacts that each of us have found to talk about before we hit other types of topics. So let's dive into those. I think, Mike, you got the first one. Yep. So um, I think the the link will be posted in the Discord as well. This one is talking about everybody's favorite social media website, TikTok. Right. There's been some interesting news in the in the space today centered around government entities banning access to TikTok on government phones, but we're starting to see state specific, you know, policies come down where governors are starting to ban it. Universities are starting to ban it. It seems like there's a trickle down effect from the government potentially into the public sphere. Um, all of this is kind of rooted around the fact that it's owned by a Chinese firm and I believe it's Bike Dance, is that correct? Yeah, um, and so the, the real big issue with this is, and we can kind of get into larger organizations, public private entities, but people bringing their personal devices into the workspace, right? There's a, there's a public issue where there is some nation state questions about whether they can track our users looking into the actual acceptance policies. It's pretty broad, right? So if you put that on your phone, you're basically um, agreeing to a lot of those security kind of flags that you typically see on apps. Um, but when you get into government entities, you get into public sphere, you get into large organizations, call it a, a banking industry. That's where it's really important to understand the bring your own device policies and then also um, understand how to segment those users off of the main networks. Uh, hospitals are a great example, right? From this is just a really good example. I think in the future, we're going to start to see more of these policies. There already are typically on the you know, bring in device, what, what apps you can actually utilize. But from a hunting perspective, this gets into some really interesting cross-pollination between policy tracking, kind of anomaly tracking, but also getting into that nation state, you know, problematic nation state type of behaviors that could potentially have a, a, a an area of impact or breach into some of these organizations. So I know Scott and Lee, y'all have worked for, you know, large public entities. I guess talk a little bit first about what kind of policies you put in place, but then from a hunting perspective, um, is this kind of a goldmine of the user data activity that you would typically look through? 
Yeah. So interesting things, you know, where I previously worked, there was a lot of company provided devices. And so those are more strict as far as what you can do. And they were, as I was kind of leaving the last place, kind of moving more towards, you can use your own device and it tried to do, you know, that mobile device management where it kind of containerized what was work-related data and what was not. There's still policies and things in place saying that they can easily access personal-based data if you enroll your device and stuff like that, more to protect the company and any of those kind of loose ends that can kind of occur. But I think what's really interesting about the whole TikTok thing, and I was really trying to like ponder, you know, there's a lot of other social media type stuff for organizations that also collect data about yourselves, right? Like your presence on the internet and they do it and they make money off of it. There's a lot of ad driven based things, but you know, something that's unique about China and Russia uh, as another example is they kind of have strong ties into any businesses that run in their, in their country. So if they want to leverage data or access things because it's kind of an authoritarian type they can kind of take advantage of that. Uh, and so, you know, looking at some of the stuff where TikTok has been used against people, obviously journalists, that was a target where they were able to track where journalists were going, you know, when they released information, where were they at? So it might help them track where maybe sources that were leaking things to journalists and stuff like that. And that's that's just not good, right? From just a human rights perspective. And, you know, we believe in a lot of freedoms as far as press and speech, but that can be really suppressive. And then, you know, one of the things to kind of consider is TikTok is one of these apps that collects data even when you're not using the app. Just having the app present um, kind of tracks kind of activity that you will do when you move around and do such things. And China's kind of a big proponent for stealing intellectual property. Um, the, it's kind of one of their main business to compete economically is can they get your IP, produce what you make at a cheaper cost, and then kind of dominate the market with that. And I feel like if you know people will say, well, why do people care about my information? Well, if, if if you happen to be a target, then that that wealth of information it could collect could be useful for potential social engineering type um, stuff, or um, depending on what kind of target you are, other types of activities. So yeah, I mean it's one of those things where like I don't like TikTok because I don't like what my kids watch on it sometimes. But you know it's it really depends on the type of person you are, what role you play, um, how critical you are to a business or things that kind of raise that risk level. And it's just easiest to also create policies that kind of just don't pick and choose who can do things just to say, yeah, we don't like things that track things to this level where there's states that we deal with on from a cyber perspective, like trying to counter that they could have access to th these types of so, information. So something that's really interesting that a friend of mine, and this is a shameless plug, but started this company called Black Cloak, but it's basically security services for high net worth individuals. So you got to think about mm -hmm. if you step away from work and you go into the home, that CEO of X company has a home network. Those kids, if they have TikTok, are on that home network. Uh, yeah. um, if there is, and this goes outside of TikTok, just talking about you know the general security, it's going to end up at the home, right? And so it's really interesting how now, even though if you have those policies set up at the organization at the office, um, a lot of times you're carrying that work home. So how do you how do you push that into the things you do at, in, in your home environment? Your day-to-day -day life to kind of protect yourself as well and I, I don't know this about TikTok, but i'm guessing from a visibility perspective that communication is probably encrypted and so you might see people utilizing the app if you have a bring your own device policy even if you don't but you're probably missing out on some of that visibility from a hunting perspective and lee i know we we've used TikTok from time to time any thoughts on that from from a hunting perspective or just a day-to-day a, a -day security concept so it's it is interesting. Um, so I guess if if I would yes, we are kicking off our 
cyborg security TikTok itself. Um, so shameless plug there as well. But I mean, first, I guess, pull it to your point. China's looking at all the information, they're collecting all the data and their IP is their biggest thing, right? I think that was the biggest story was told was whenever they built their own Ford F-150. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, that's pretty crazy. But you're also right with, can you control it a bit? And maybe through, from a hunting perspective, could you sit there and prioritize different devices? Maybe don't control everything that's on it, but monitor, see how that goes. And then from that step up, watch the communication, watch the uh, information that's going on. Um, and like you said, encrypted, probably couldn't dig into how much information that you can pull. It's a give and take, right? Tracking journalisms, yes, that or journalists, that's bad. Um, I guess they made a legal, a legal form of Pegasus, or I guess I should say a more um, publicly accepted version well, of Pegasus. You volunteer yourself in, right? You're installed. Right, for like them. it's yeah. no like uh, zero day, no click. But you actually installed it, so they could be like, well, you know, that wasn't us. Any big data thing like that, I think, can be used in nefarious ways. So just be careful if your kids are using it. Let them know. Not everything's so peachy. You know, I got I got young kids that are watching it. They love Dude Perfect, and they're like, oh, look how great these guys are. It's like, dude, you they film this a million times until they get it right, <laughs> then they edit. Like it's not just they don't just walk <laughs> up and, yeah, yep. right. But there's also a lot of value in it. Just like YouTube Shorts, YouTube itself. Like, how many times have you been in a pinch where you're like, "Oh man, I need to learn this." What it, you know? Does anyone know how to do this? And then you watch it in like 30 seconds, and you have the answer. Kind of like a video version of Stack Overflow, right? I like your Alex Infosec BYOD. Bring your own disaster. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think I think just it's just an interesting article. Seeing it, I, I guess again, like I always say, well, watch this progress, but. I think there is about 15 states that have already kind of put policies. I'm curious when this is going to be a, a federal or government policy. I know there's too much financial and commerce potentially like negative effects of banning an app completely. There's a lot of people making a lot of money on this app, so there could be some negative pushback. But it's going to be interesting to see how this is this kind of progresses um, throughout organizations and, and public and private sphere. Yeah, yeah, I just feel like people don't understand the true value that data can bring, even though it's not as specific as people are sensitive as people think. Like, well, it's not my credit card number. It's like, there's a lot you can do with just continuous flow of data about people. Oh, absolutely. And that's how Facebook and some of these organizations, like you said, make a lot of money. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know if we said it, but someone brought up a good point. The BYOD, getting rid of it completely. Like, then you don't feel like you're getting invaded, right? You're not sitting there saying like, well, I brought my own personal phone. My company's telling me what I can and cannot do. I say what the challenges with that are is, you know, people want to adopt two-factor. And what's the easiest way to onboard people with two-factor is let them use their own device. Yep. Well, they issue. So, like if they so issue, you're dealing with different risks. Right, right. But if they issue a phone and say you can't put TikTok on it, okay. Well, yeah, you should be able to govern a company phone and, and, and right. do what you want that way. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of it's cost too, right? Like, especially oh, yeah. now in, in a work from remote type of environment, like imagine these organizations in, in less on computers and more on phones that they would have had to shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars to send out phones to all these people if there was a not a bring your own device policy. Do you have them access company email? I'm just talking about email on flights, right? A lot of people are just using that on their personal phone. That's a huge risk. Right. And so if you can't control the encryption policies or 
the acceptable use policies on those phones, like who knows, right? Right. Um, All right, you guys ready to jump to the next one? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, by the All way, right. so you can watch Lee dance on TikTok coming up, right? <laughs> Is that the? <laughs> yes. Not not quite yet. I guess if we get uh, what would be a good number? Ten thousand yeah. followers. There we go. That's not what you're looking for. <laughs> So next topic is going to be a tool, um, a GitHub. It's a uh, Carnegie Mellon makes some really cool tools, and it's called Ghosts. I'll see if if someone posted in the um, in the chat. If not, I'll I'll post it in there after I'm done talking about it. The links to the actual GitHubs. But there's three different GitHubs. They're all kind of related. Perfect. Someone threw them in there. But what Ghosts is is where I've seen it is some of the training exercises that I've taken part in. It was a way to do like NPC, kind of like the non-player character where you can you know simulating traffic sometimes isn't the best to just replay pcaps and things like that um, this allows you to basically set up activities at certain times or create random activity where you can put in like a whole list of basically links that you want people to browse to and then you can put in like a number of like how many links on those pages will they go and how many times will they keep clicking through things to kind of simulate real traffic as well they can you can simulate the writing of emails, opening of emails, writing on op uh, of documents, opening and closing Microsoft Office things, um, and then they they that was the, like the first version. But they have other things now where you can create uh, personas. So now you can kind of have like this person is more like this versus like this. Uh, so you can create this whole network of fake people on a network. And what's kind of cool is if you want to do it for training purposes as well. Uh, you can kind of script in what you want an adversary to do. So you can have your, your NPC be an adversary and it can do specific actions and then you can have defenders trying to respond to that. Um, in the case where I've seen it, you know, we had real people doing the bad activity. It was just nice to have that data because you, know, you go to an exercise where you have bad and good, you just assume all the activity you see is bad because it's the only activity going on. It kind of helps blind some of that, but it's a really cool project. I, I highly recommend if you're into like training stuff where you're into data and you want to be able to you know a lot of people have used some of these things for machine learning training sets where they can kind of create some what they say is normal data or create some what they say normal personas because there's even their character creation they can get really detailed as far as what they randomly generate so really really cool tools the youtube video kind of walks through uh exactly how the different kind of use cases I, I walk through a little bit always wanting to create training capabilities for people to kind of have that real world hands-on i thought this was fantastic and i haven't seen anything that emulated this type of traffic or people on the network like this at all so if anyone has anything they've seen before that'd be awesome if you shared as well yeah i don't know what you guys think when you guys saw this when I, I threw it out there i thought it was awesome first of all being in the lab environment being the attacker all the time you know it's kind of it's kind of easy to find my activity right. um Granted, what we are doing is different. We're not pen testers. We're not, um, you know, we're validating our queries. So you kind of want it to be there to say, hey, at least, you know, I know what happened. But to go through threat hunting exercises and to improve your skills from a point of view where nothing's in danger, I, I think everyone needs that. I mean, you know how I feel about training. Training, you know, you train, you train, and then, then an incident happens, and that's where you take your skills that you've worked on mm -hmm. and you use them versus – you're gonna sit there and try and learn during an incident. No one learns during an incident. I mean, you learn what your, you know, your gaps are. You learn what people can do what. But that's what you learn. Versus, hey, I'm gonna improve my skills right now while the world's on fire. But this is really, really interesting. I look forward to hopefully using it soon. 
Yeah, we'll get it installed in the lab. <laughs> yeah, Mike liked it. The first thing I looked at, so back at a previous job, we were trying to simulate traffic to show value in a, a tool. There's a company called Ixia that was really the, the industry kind of standard for PCAP generation, network generation. They had some configurations where you could set up the IP addresses, the protocols, it, but it didn't take it to the endpoint level. And so like mm -hmm. this, I'm sitting here looking at it. I'm like, man, if you could build a product around this, but it's copyrighted by Carnegie Mellon. I, I took a look at the license on GitHub. It's not all the way open source, even though it's on GitHub, but um, there is a, there's a really, really interesting capability here that you could build scenarios um, against, again, like you were saying, insider threats, actors, um, different behaviors have that running while the thread's actually running on the box. So right. as Lee's mentioning, typically in a sandbox environment, it's a machine. You run the malware, get the logs. Now imagine if you have this machine with this ghost running on it, generating real world data as that malware or ransomware or something is triggered on the back end. And that's gonna give you a more realistic view of the oh crap moment, my, my machine's infected, right? So it's a, uh, it's amazing. I'll, I'll, we'll work on it internally to get that thing deployed. I can't wait to play with it. Um, I think that's what's great about you know having a space to kind of play in this in this you know with these kind of tools. But and I'm glad you found it. It's kind of net new, right? We always talk about PCAP generation. It's hard mm -hmm. to generate real world user data. You have those mouse click kind of tools, but this is opening up PDFs and web browsing and Mac document or uh, Word documents. So yeah, I can't wait to use this. I think we'll probably have to do a, a full kind of deep dive on this eventually, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'd be really cool. And I, I didn't look too deep in the code, but I did see that it's, it's continuously being maintained because I saw there were even updates like yesterday, which is also awesome that it's, it's not just kind of something yeah. dead that I knew about a few years ago. You know how we share different types of things in the cyber realm, like we share Sigma for detections or we share IOCs for, the purpose of IOCs. It would be cool if this was something that where people can write, like pre-write these scenarios or these types of behaviors. And then that could be something that's kind of like, you can just, it's like a library of things you want to go through. Cause it'd be, it'd be great to be able to do that from a training, attacking, whatever perspective. So I was curious, like how adaptable, how easy it is to code new behaviors or new activities to create really kind of unique things in there. So I haven't really looked too deeply at the code. I'm assuming, I mean, anything's possible. It's just whether or not got the talent or the time, so. Yeah, yeah, I think from what I saw, they, and a good thing is they build a pretty specific structure, JSON kind of document on the things that you add to it for actions and interactions, right? So that's something you could probably programmatically do. But I think this is huge, and this kind of goes into what organizations do to mimic traffic on their own. I think every we go into maturity scales, right? So very large mature organizations typically have a lab environment. It's typically mimic of what their organization is. It does cost. And so that's kind of the barrier to entry to do that work. But then what are you doing in that lab environment? Is it just running malware or just executing some things against your endpoints or are you actually generating traffic and doing real world hunting exercises? So I think there's a combination of tools out there that can really build an amazing lab or a home lab or anything that you know can can mimic what your organization traffic looks like. Absolutely. And I mean, 
we have the atomics. We built those to validate our queries. This could validate your threat hunt team. And that's that's really powerful. Yep. Oh yeah. Um I, I was gonna mention that, but there is a going back to the previous article before we move on, the Strava heat map. That was uh that was crazy to look at. <laughs> I know Scott, you said you remember that as well. But um I remember and that's kind of what the TikTok reminded me of, but yeah. Yeah, data tells all. I mean, like, this, you know, based on what Lee and I did past lives, you know, one of the things we looked at when we went after targets was patterns of life. Like, what did people do? So if we wanted to hit them, we can be successful. Data Burn drives home. all that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's scary, but that's, I mean, that's, I mean, let's be honest. Like, if you, if that's the goal or the agenda, that's kind of what you use it for. Yep. It's funny, the difference between they caught me off my Garmin, you know, versus like the low hanging fruit where they're like, yeah, all we did was track that guy who posted a bunch of pictures to Facebook of the whole entire base. I don't yeah, yeah. remember that, but like the guy yeah. was like flying in and he took a picture. He's like, this is the main entrance. There's the guard right. shack. Here's the back door. <laughs> it's like. And that tax pursuit immediately after that. <laughs> Thanks, man. Bad. Right, right, right. And of uh, course they're like, don't do this. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, Sharing now, and I can't wait to start playing around with that tool. I know I'm going to get welcome. a bunch of requests to get that deployed in our lab, so can't wait. Hey, Alex. I'm, I'm, yep. I'll okay. fuck. Yep. <laughs> Artly, you want to jump to yours? All right. So mine is an article or report, I guess. I will. I will warn you right now. You'll have to enter some information about yourself if you want to read the whole 75-page document. Granted, it's about 35 pages of really good information, and the rest is like IOCs and different stuff. So if you're not aware of Group IB, I've read multiple reports from them, and normally they don't put out articles and reports until it is like completely technical. You can see from start to finish. Uh, so there's a lot of technical de details. But some main things I took away from this, and this was from November, but I'm still researching some tools about it. Which is actually, now I'll get to that, but it's really interesting. So they all used commodity malware. So main things like Cobalt Strike, Mimikatz, PowerSploit, you know, they continue to use the tools that are out there. Yes, there was some living off the land binaries once they got there because, but to get like, you know, the pr initial access and get through to them, it's all looking the same. And of course, AnyDesk is in there. I like to beat up on AnyDesk just because it does show up in so many reports. Nothing against the tool. Um, it's very... It's uh, <laughs> uh, it's very helpful, but tools like that will get targeted just because of their functionality. They have persistence, which actually uh, one of the one of the things that I liked was the persistence. The registry, or is it? It was in the current version run registry key, but the registry key name was actually SVC host. So, you know, thinking about how you, I think last last episode's threat hunt tip was look for legitimate names that in illegitimate locations and this just goes i think it's funny that it matched up and i guess i got really lucky but this you know that exact thing is you got this registry key named svc host you know why um but then you know they went to uh, credential access which by the way we will be getting into with our uh, threat hunting workshop it'll be me elastic and uh whoever wants to come so please show up we'll we'll be doing those again the credential access was a, one of the tools they used was the revealer keylogger, which I actually had a lot of fun with. First of all, you can download it for free on the internet. I think it's 
Logic Soft, L-O-G-I-X-O-F-T. Um, the great thing about it is you can download the free version and run it with no problem. The paid version is, or like the pro version for one computer to monitor is 40 bucks. So I was like, you know what? That That's that's not asking much. So I got it and that unlocks the, um, the capabilities of you can get screenshots, you can deliver it remotely, you can un, you know schedule and uninstall it. So all these great capabilities of what a keylogger should be or should be designed to be. Um, I actually definitely, uh, yes, downloaded, <laughs> it was downloaded safely or it's in our lab. I'm not worried. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> you are all be, you all start getting my messages. Um, but, <laughs> but this whole report was, it was very technical. It walked through every step, you know, they had a kill chain and it just goes to show the length that the group IB will go into to investigate, but all of the behaviors, the tactics, techniques, and procedures, and the behaviors that you can pull out of it. Or if you know, and the reason I focused on the keylogger was I always was interested in what does a keylogger look like? Not on my computer, but of course, from a log point of view, because I love logs. I'm a log junkie. Um, that, that's what I do, right? So I was like, what does it look like? And I finally got to see it. Uh, for 40 bucks, but that was great. Like it was an eye opener and I hope, and I plan to look for more tools and poke around just to get more understanding of what's going on. But then, you know, they go through the attackers added users to domain admins group, like that simple. So it shows like controls that are being completely bypassed or there weren't controls in the first place. And the last thing I'll mention about this report that I really, really liked was they actually had like a seven or eight point recommendation, I think they call it recommendations and threat hunting tips. So they didn't just plop a bunch of data in front of you and say, here it is. They actually said here, here's how you can operationalize it. Um, very general terms, uh, but still a very valuable thing. And I, I don't know how many reports I've ever seen that in. Um, I know D for reports, they like to give us sigmas, they give us uh, Yara rules, they give us, uh, I think some other things, but they've never like, and I think that's the issue again with the or the gap between uh, SOC analysts, CTI, and threat hunters is that CTI is really good at their job. They get all the data, they know what to do with it. Here it is. SOCs, they you know security analysts, they report, they investigate, they know what to do. Then threat hunters, you know, there's a gap of you know where do I fit in? How can I take the CTI information and how can I use that in my terms? Because even if you know, if you run hashes, if you look for IOCs and there's nothing that's not, hey, we're good, it's how mm -hmm. can I take the rest of the information and how can I use that to threat hunt and actually look for behaviors, tactics, techniques? But I talked enough. Uh, what do you gentlemen think? Yeah, so, I mean, 75-page report. I, I usually do my first pass on, like, what about the report makes it unique from other reports. So I'm kind of going to talk through, like, my favorite parts that some people do or do not call out. And I always harp on it, but I love when people tie attacks to like the, the human aspect. And that, and so in the key finding sections, like, you know, towards the beginning, they even talk about the motivation. And one of the things I used to hate when um, I was early in my career, right? And, you know, getting report after report and I had to decide, okay, this is really cool. What do I learn from this? But why do I care, right? Like, or should I care? And then people are always like, well, then you have all these uh, consultants or whoever approach, you know, your team 
and talk about, well, who are the, what are the threats you're worried about? What threats are you tracking? I'm like, I have, I mean, all threats sound bad, right? Like which ones should I be tracking? That, that was a really hard uh, thing for me to discern. But then I started to get kind of get smart as about like, you know, nation state looking at geopolitical things. Like if you looked at every big nation state attack, there's geopolitical ties from the news and world events and things that drive a lot of that. Or, you know, you look at like even financially motivated people, there's more to it than just financials. Like they have a key target set as far as, well, yeah, they want to make money, but they're looking for like open RDP access to the internet. So like if there's certain things that aren't available, then they're not really a, a, a true threat or immediate threat. I mean, probably still a threat. So I love kind of distilling things down to that. And they did a really good job breaking that out. And they even got to the point where they talked about like time spent and specifics. They talked about the human behaviors and specifics. Like they work primarily on the weekends. And I was like, that's really cool that they kind of broke that out. Because one of the things I also hate when you're getting hit with, hey, is this affect us? Or you think you're being affected by this? Is how do you narrow down your window to, to try to identify a few key things to say we may have something? You know, the last thing I, I hate doing is like, okay, well, let's take these few things and search back 90 days, you know, and then if they're not in those 90, like, it's, I think it's easier to say, hey, let's look for Sundays or Saturdays. You know, that that to me is like a quick pass. And then if we get nothing back, sure, we can kick off something longer. But if we do get something back, we take quicker action. Just curious, and that's a really good point. Is there typically that capability in a lot of these tools to say, I just want to, I care about Saturdays, 90 days in the past? Um. Not easily, no. Um, but the like... benefit, well, the benefit is it's like some tools and some tools I've used, not saying I've used the best, you kick off a really long search, there's a lot of sit and wait. Yep. But if you target specific days, you might get results faster. So you can just say, all right, let's get that result, get that result, get that yep. result. And then you kind of move quicker anyways. But yeah, that'd be great capability, right? So the, and then the, the time spent, what I like about knowing dwell time, it isn't so much like it's not a matter of how long did it take to detect them. So like you knew how good the adversary was or how good the defender was. It To me, it's more about how long did it take them to reach their objective from an adversary to be successful? And that's like, what window of time do I have to hunt in? Right. And then not only that, but like if their dwell time is 60 days, then you can expect most activities in that report something that will show up you don't have to find everything but something will in a 60-day period right like it's a long time so i feel like that kind of opens you up for what are the things you can hunt for because if it's really really short you're only hunt for a really finite set of things uh, and they may or may not do everything so uh that's that's kind of why i like the dwell time piece and then sure. the breakout of the article one of the things that really stood out to me was they were technical on every phase i, I i'm not a fan of the kill chain but only because attacks really aren't linear I get it though, but there was technical detail for every part of the kill chain. And that to me was refreshing because there's so many times where it's like, they did this, did this, did this, and the name of these techniques, you know, especially when it comes to miter, like they did these miter things. And then we have this technical detail on this one. And you're like, oh, that's cool. That one that you talked about, I can't do anything about in my environment because maybe I don't have the right tools or the data for it, but these other ones I might be able to, but there's no details. So now I'm just kind of in this paranoia state. And I don't like reports that make you paranoid. I like reports that help you develop solutions. So I thought this was a really good report from that. So that's kind of my overview of, of the report yeah. itself. I don't want to dig too deep into anything else. But yeah, that's what I got. What do you got, Mike? Um, is this the gold standard for reporting? I mean, I'd say it hits a lot of those <laughs> marks. Um, yeah. yeah. I think in, in going back, and you, you keyed on some very interesting topics in the key findings that 
it, it's good they broke it down this way, but I think this lens very it's a it's a great transition into what you should do from a thriving perspective. So one of the first things is that dwell time, three to twelve months from intrusion to withdrawal of money. A lot of these organizations that were hit by this probably were not threat hunting, right? And and that can kind of go into the difference between detection engineering and threat hunting engineering and the things that you're looking for. So I'm guessing that these these actors would go in, they'd set up shop basically, and they would know within that first three months if they were identified, and probably have a pretty good uh, uh, understanding if they were hit or, or at least seen in that environment right so if if those detection rules fail you're really only going to track them down via threat hunting mechanisms right and so getting from that into the when they're actually potentially lateral moving or executing the key loggers or doing a lot of that work it being on the weekend all of these things kind of build that that trail of activity or behaviors that you should be able to track on. So how long, and I don't know in the article, I see it's 2016 to present, but I'm guessing there's some sort of buffer between them collecting all this data and then putting this up, this report out, right? Okay. So if you're getting this report today, there's some good retroactive funds that you could potentially do, but it's probably not as pertinent for your organization as it was a year ago or two years ago, right? Um, is that what you're kind of looking at from a hunter's perspective as you start to get these reports? You're like, oh, I'm glad I know this information now, but there's probably some sort of buffer time that I could use this six months ago. Yeah, I mean, it, knowing that there is a window to hunt in because it's it's one, well, I feel like there, the longer something exists in an environment, the more noise it can make. I know that's not necessarily a direct correlation, mm -hmm. right? But I like to think in most aspects, there is that because if the mission was easy, it'd be in and out. I mean, look at ransomware. Mission was easy. Get the access you need, deploy ransomware. They're in and out, right? And so if someone is dwelling, I don't think it's typically because they just need to maintain access. I get that's a thing. But in this circumstance, I don't think it is because it's financially motivated. Why would you wait for your money, right? So that means there were some hurdles potentially, or they need to lay in wait to get the right access, or a lot of mistakes being made. And that's all noise that is detectable, in my opinion. So mm -hmm. that, that's what that dwell time says a lot to me, too, is there's a lot of opportunity. Um, but then again, it also opens up, like you said, a big window as far as, well, where do I look? But yeah. I always find the value uh, that's the longest standing is the behaviors, right? Like, so say say they did, a, you know, target a bunch of your partners and their customers and they didn't get hit or, and you didn't get hit. What you can always do is if something does happen and, and, and you don't have a report on hand, you could always take a look at that report and say, all right, if we got hit initial access, where are we now? What What behaviors can we look for? What, you know, persistence? And start going down the tactics and start trying to find out, you know, how did it look when they were attacking back then? Because they're probably not going to change. You know, they did that attack time and time again. They're going to do it. They're going to come back and do the same thing. Um, that's oh. why I really enjoy these rewards. So, so what's really good about, you know, I talked about, you know, at the beginning, 
finding out whether or not these reports or things matter to you because they, you might not even be part of the target set, right? But reports that are written really well hold a lot of value because they let you understand those techniques and tactics that adversaries can use. And they're commonly shared and used by many. And a great example of that is when Lee talked about that keylogger, you know, he, he was super excited. So we got to hear about it all in chat and he's doing screenshots and it was a very entertaining day. But one of the things that was cool was he mentioned a couple different things and immediately popped when he was investigating. And it was like, well, we already have 200 packages that we developed that would catch that keylogger based on some of the behaviors it performs. And that's what I think is really cool about threat hunting is we didn't need to see this report we didn't necessarily need to address a specific adversary, but because we've covered similar tactics in the past, that means moving forward, we have the capabilities to detect them regardless if we have this report or not. Now we not be able to detect all of them. There might be some nuances you learned that are net new, um, but that's that's why when it comes to like finding and identifying threats, why threat hunting can be very effective because if we were just doing IOCs, we'd have to wait for the report to come out. And we'd have to retroactively look back. Right. If yep. we were hit. And that's that's the big difference. Like we're able to take something we already had and we could do it now and move forward versus IOCs very seldom. Um, it's really dependent upon reporting time that you actually use them moving forward. Like I have seen that you work. Right. But typically it's a retroactive action. So. Um, in this article, in the key findings, it said number of attacks, 30 successful attacks since 2019. Did it talk about the unsuccessful attacks? Was like there any data? I feel like you can glean a lot of information off of that. I did not read the 75 page report. I'm sorry, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do um, not like see anything, yeah. but usually I, I would say that they may not know that number because how they determine successful is probably easier than determine unsuccessful because there's sure. you can see follow on activity, the no and fingerprint that was them, you know. But is but. there, so I know CISA has policies around reporting intrusions for specific companies in the United States. I'm guessing there's a lot of data around blocked uh, ransomware attempts and like that, you can glean a lot of information about the things that did not happen, right? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting topic you brought up. Maybe it will be a good touching topic to hit on, but I've run into issues where like, for instance, Maryland, the state of Maryland had reporting requirements and they couldn't nail down what was a security incident versus what it was a security event. And they kind of muddied the water and they're like, we need a phone call <laughs> every time a security event occurs. We're like, you mean like an alert? <laughs> like, wh what do you mean? Like a true incident? Cause that's, and they're like, no, 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 not, not when it, we, we need to know. And we're like, that would be like thousands of phone calls. Are you sure this is what you want to require? So like, at a, the reporting thing kind of gets weird and funny, but I did yeah, run across yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, that should probably be another topic for another day. I, right. I would love that data, right? Oh, absolutely. And that, that's why they want it, but they just don't know what to do with it and what that really means because they don't realize that attacks, you know, they're kind of being scattered, you know, in general, right? Sure. Sure. I'm sure the companies that have a lot of that data are the MDRs, the CrowdStrikes, the cloud-based oh, endpoint. Yeah services that they're probably leveraging some of that data, but it seems like you can learn a lot from that. So yeah. Um all right, should we should move on to the cybersecurity topics of the day? Yeah. Well yeah I think articles we can kind of get in some some discussion points. 
Lee, you want to, I think you got one of the first ones listed. You want to grab that one? Well, I was going to mention the threat hunting tip of the day as well. Oh yeah. Jump into that. We'll jump into these. Yeah. So, um, and this, so this comes from a, um, some workshops that I've done and some just hunting that I've done in the past. Um, we always talk about context. We always talk about, you know, if you start with a hunter platform query, it should take you in the right direction. And if it finds you, or if you find some activity, you, you should have some artifacts. Um, and a big thing that I'm mentioning is um, pivot queries, right? We always follow on with pivot queries. It's the hunter, the hunter platform isn't designed. Remember, they're not detections. We're not saying, you know, hey, we found it. We ran a hunt or a cyborg query and we found it and we're good. Um, you know, there's always more investigating, investigating to be done. So what happens is, you know, you get your artifact, you run the query, you find some artifact, which could be an executable, could be a registry key, whatever it is. If it comes to a process, there's something I always like to do right away. Um, and I want to share that with you. Normally, what I like to do is if I get a process, I will build a query out that in whatever tool I'm using, it will focus on process events. It will focus on file creation events. It will focus on network connectivity. Um, then we got uh, registry key modifications and any um, really interesting events like that. Um, I really like to make just one big query. And then I use, if it's in Splunk, I use the stats command where I list all the values out. Um, and then, you know, if it's CrowdStrike, I can use stats as well. Um, you know, if it's whatever tool you have to display the data, however you want. Now, the idea behind this is you, you use the query, you got to a starting point for your hunt. And I know there's, you know, some people really like persistence. Some people like registry keys. Some people like file creates, process executables, whatever the case is, you are giving yourself an option to go. You have all these different events that are returned if there's a lot of activity. So what you could do is you could either take your favorite one or the one you're least, um, you know, used to, but you could drive that. So instead of trying to breadcrumb your way from event to event to event, what you can do is if you take that one artifact that you find, um, possibly process ID, you can sit there and say, all right, give me all of it back. And then you cast this giant net. And then from there, you can start plugging away and really whittling everything down. Um, I always like doing that just because immediately, you know, you get you get the context. You say it was touching this, 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 and this, and this is how you know it went. Um, but that's just me. So there's your threat hunting tip of the day. Power pivot. Power pivot. I like it. Power pivot. I like it. Yeah, yeah. You need a gift to go along with that. Some basketball player just pivoting hard. <laughs> Be perfect. It's hard. Oh. <laughs> Some elbows in there. Right. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, throw the out. elbow. <laughs> out. Yep. Um, all right, so yeah, Lee, you have the first topic of the day. I think we could probably get through a few before the uh, to, uh, 30 minutes into the eight. So. All right. So the topic that is mostly discussed on TikTok, Twitter, there's always YouTube videos of it. How did I break into cybersecurity or technology? I know my personal story, but... I'm going to save that for another time. Gentlemen, how did you get into cybersecurity? Did you start in education, experience? I want to hear your story, Lee. It's your article. My story? It's your All topic. Right, so, 
my story was actually rather hilarious. So came out of high school. So I loved video games growing up, right? Came out of high school and I was like, I'm not really doing much. I'm going to join the army. Going into the army, I was like, well, you know, I want a skill. I want to learn a skill that I can leave the army with um, and actually learn a trade craft. You know, so however long I'm in there, at least I got, you know, some skill out of it. So I decided to be a 94 Foxtrot, which at the time was an electronic repairman. So in my AIT, I learned how to put computers together. I learned how to um, fix them, how to fix night vision goggles and so on. So that's where I got. Then um, went through my airborne training and then I went through RIP, which was the Ranger Indoctrination Program. Um, and then I got to 75th Ranger Regiment. And they're like, what MOS are you? I was like, a 94 Fox. They're like, we really don't do that here. I was like, oh, okay. So two years of training, or I guess it was like nine months of training in AIT. Um, and then from there, they're like, you're going to learn how to configure, troubleshoot, maintain Cisco routers and switches. Oof. So not anywhere close to where <laughs> I was going, not anywhere where I meant to be, but I landed there. Um, and then from there, started learning i got really like i had a lot of fun with him it was a puzzle right how do you get this talk to this and then poli here gets put on my team as a team leader overseas he drills it into me like subnetting all that stuff and then he the smallest left. whiteboard possible to use though by the way right he he would have been so sad <laughs> whiteboard too. it was like one of those like dollar yeah. general <laughs> like the pocket whiteboards yeah but um so we're you know and that's like what overseas that's all we did he was just mm -hmm. like this is our task for today get it done and i was like all right and then he left and it was just sad me working on it um and then i got out of the military and i was like i'm gonna be a network guy so i went back to pittsburgh where i was normally from couldn't find a job and who calls poli <laughs> he was like hey come work for me be a security guy i was like no i'm a network guy you know this so he's hard. like no come on <laughs> so I was like, yeah, let's do it. So I finally got there. I became a SOC analyst um, four years at First Energy. And I think it was the second year I read the JP CERT um, article that covered, uh, they, all they did was they executed uh, low bins. They just went through and clicked them, but they had, they were capturing all the event codes that they generated. So just, you know, running command prompt, you know, what does that look like from a log point of view? And that's where I found Sysmon. And I loved Sysmon from Don't that point data. on. Yeah, like I and that was it. Um, and you know, here I am now. Um, so I have to say, absolute luck that I'm here. There is no, there was no like, it was destiny. Like, like I just <laughs> lucked out every step of the way. But so I'd like to hear uh, some stories that were more deliberate. I mean, Scott, you're up. <laughs> deliberate. Um, you know, it's funny. This is why a lot of times when I interview people, I ask like, Hey, what do you do for hobbies and things? Because I feel like board games and video games kind of play in, into a lot of people that, you know, practice the field of cybersecurity. But, you know, when I was a kid, I played a lot of video games and I wanted to know how can I play video games with other people before online gaming was a thing. So I learned some basic, basic things that didn't really know what it was, but got things to work. But I was always interested in technology, went the military route, like, uh, uh, Lee mentioned and then um, one of the things about being part of the Ranger Regiment didn't matter what your MOS was you were you were just a comms guy in general so anything that was 
communications we learned. And then when you went overseas, anything that had power, we're supposed to be experts. I don't know how many times people call me to fix refrigerators and things. And I'm like, what, what would I do with a refrigerator? I don't know. They're like, well, it, it has power, right? And I'm like, yeah, that's about all I know. But normally what ended up happening is you just need to plug these things in, which is do always you fun. you remember that 75 pound projector, like movie theater grade projector that they had in the jock that was hanging 10, 15 feet in the air. That had to fix? Not fix. All we had to do was go up there, lug it up and down this ladder every once in a while, blow all the sand out of it, oh, and hang yeah, it back up. <laughs> that, yeah. That's a combo job. Because it had power. Cause but, it had um, power. So, so yeah, so, you know, went through all, all those types of things. But I, I learned a lot of skills in the communication, networking, and stuff like that. And then I knew security was a field at the time. And was interested, so I, I picked a, a a computer science degree because I already did enough hardware type stuff. I want to learn the software side of things, but it was focused in security and forensics. Um, but really, what I think separates good security people, and it doesn't really matter how you start, it's they they maintain that curiosity, right? I think I think what separates the layman from like people that ex excel and do great new things is the difference in curiosity. Um, that's like a dividing line there. Um, but I do remember when I was starting out in security, um, I was always surrounded by people that talked a different language and had a different understanding of things. And I and I was too intimidated to like not look like I knew what I was talking about. And so I would just kind of sit back and listen. And I would take notes of like all the acronyms being used, terminology being used. Um, anything that I knew I could look up later and I just found myself constantly looking things up and then realized, oh, I did know that, but I didn't know that's what it was called or I didn't know that, but I understand it. And when I started to realize that there wasn't anything I couldn't understand, um, it kind of built that confidence that, oh, I, I actually can do what I want or think I can do. Um, I just need enough time and exposure and whatever training I could find, stuff like that. So, hey, Mike. my turn. Yeah, what'd you do? You just woke up one day and was a cybersecurity professional? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, ah, I'm going to be VP of engineering today. <laughs> um, no, I think from a, I think to your point, Scott, I think I always had an interest in computers as a kid. I mean, um, I had an older brother, seven years older than me, who's a genius, right? Um, he's a an architect at IBM right now, super sharp guy, has like 13 patents under his name. So, I was kind of riding his coattails as I was kind of coming up and, and just exploring computers. I remember sitting yeah. down and going through every single folder and file on Windows back like 90, I can't remember what year it was, Might maybe it would have been 97 or something, just to like explore and see what the heck was going on, right? Um, but then like sports happened. <laughs> so it was hard to balance, uh, at least when I got to college, balance sports and playing baseball. Um, so going to UVA, I had to make a really hard choice of, am I going to go into the computer engineering, mechanical engineering world, or am I going to play baseball? So luckily for me, I had a really good opportunity after playing baseball, I have a sociology degree and as a background. But during that time, I was still playing with computers, like, you know, board games, video games, any type of logic type puzzle. Right. I get drawn in. Um, so I got the opportunity to get drafted and play with the Rockies minor league ball for about seven years. But 
I think it's it's in to your point, Lee. I think you put yourself in the right position to be successful in cybersecurity through the different things you did along the way. I started taking cybersecurity uh, grad school classes while I was playing baseball. So I knew that was going to end one day. And I lucked up on a random forum for a little company called Foreground Security where I kind of got my start. And that's where I got my first internship. And I luckily had really good mentors that gave me an opportunity to learn this space. Um, I really started out in engineering first um, and then kind of programming, automation, sales engineering, and then had the opportunity over here to, to, to help start Cyborg. But it's really about, if you have that passion, there's a lot of resources out there. And I think we're going to get into this conversation. But um, I remember going to a couple of sites we'll talk about in a second where I had to teach myself Python. Um, I had to teach myself web development. I had to do a lot of things in after hours and put that effort in to, to be successful in this field. Um, but it's, it's about putting yourself in that right position. So there's a lot of resources out there. I think when people talk about cybersecurity, there's an, uh, an air of complexity and it's, it's super complex. And I don't know if I can, you know, make it in that field. And so there's kind of a barrier to entry, but once you get in, it's just, it's the same things that IT or excuse me, uh, infrastructure people do or networking people do it's just with a security focus. Um, and so I know both of you have done personal development and growth and education. So that'd be a really good kind of pivot into what kind of things or resources did y'all use to fine tune those skills? Because when you're in the job, you're typically doing that job and it's it's those eight hour days, those 10 hour days, it's hard to grow your skill set. And so I think the people that are really successful in this field have those side projects or tinker or you know build those home labs or servers or whatever it is so um, i'd be interested to understand how you kind of grew your skills outside of that that day-to-day -day once you got your first job so well there's two things that both you guys mentioned and i'm kind of curious about one you know we were interested in computers at an early age but that was like the age when computers weren't the thing for everybody I'm curious what the new generation of people would say because there is no interest in computers. Computers is part of their life, right? So I'm, I'm kind of curious what would separate those of the newer generation to make them go that path. Um, and two, mentioning that you know we've all found really good mentors um, in our path, and and I do think that's really important to find that person that um, can kind of help foster your growth. Um, because they're at least a good sounding wall. Like one of the things, like if I didn't have a good person technically to teach me new things, I loved having that soundboard where I can take ideas and bounce them off somebody that I knew could either understand what I'm trying to say and can validate if what I'm saying makes sense is a good idea, bad idea, and at least have that conversation. Um, so I think those are incredibly important. Um, but back to your question as far as you to rephrase it so I make sure I understand it correctly. You're, you're talking about like, what are some of the things we've done to develop ourselves? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And to your point though, I think you were talking about resume um, hiring questions that you ask. I always mm -hmm. love to ask what are your hobbies outside of work? Right. Because what those Thanks, are, Gordon. 
if you if you're excited about yeah when i get done i have this home lab or i'm doing this really cool project in home automation or you're tinkering on things like that's the type of personality that i feel like i'm drawn to i'm sure that y'all are um that i mean we've hired great people here right and everybody has that commonality that they love what they do right. it's a passion right so yes yeah and it, it bleeds out to you know that keep going with that curiosity right like, mm -hmm. like you know yeah you just come to work check the box and go on and you know, that's it no you're going on you're doing these extra things because you're continuing learning i mean cybersecurity is you're you know once you take this first step you're going to be a lifelong learner so you got to keep up with things um and you know whatever <laughs> hobbies you have <laughs> so so one of the guys alex info he mentioned a tool um bloodhound and lee oh, yeah. you probably remember when i discovered <laughs> bloodhound i went insane on bloodhound so my favorite thing um one of the things is, is learning things is i like to just see how tools work and why they work well my my least favorite thing um working in cybersecurity is when someone drops a vendor tool in your lap and it's just like it just just do what it tells you right like it, it'll give you alerts investigate those alerts you use it and it's like yeah but how does it know to alert why do right. i care about like i want to know those things like i want this deep understanding um so i i fell in love with finding tools like bloodhound so uh, a quick bloodhound story like i that's what made me actually discover how much i love data as well um lee was his whole j pass or whatever was it j pass the j j, j something yeah jp yeah yeah um you fell you fell in love with system on there bloodhound uh, I loved mapping our entire network for how AD worked and then seeing how easy it was and how hard it was for administrators to understand the problems that I was finding. Like, hey, why do we have this or these groups or these people with these privileges? Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, was well, nested like 10 times. And so these people that are like C-level people have access to things administrators should have access. To. That doesn't make any sense. They're like, well, how do you know that? I'm like, well, it's, it's, it's in this picture. And it was like great to have a visual with it. Um, but then I got really interested in like, well, what are some other things I could do? And I created some cool behavioral mechanisms um, that I called the onion, which I won't go into here because it's a whole nother deep conversation about cool tools I created. But then I really started getting into some like machine learning type stuff. So um, I love to just dabble and try to create and use data in different ways. Um, so I, I played around with uh, malware um i wanted to understand how the, all that stuff works so it was really just like what i really needed to develop my skills was a safe place to play um it was really big for us to have a lab where i worked we pushed that pretty hard it was pretty basic when we first had it but just having something that you weren't worried about breaking um was amazing my very very first job um i worked as the security analyst or the security person for a university while i was going to school and I just, they gave me a license to VMware so I can spin up anything. And my lab really was just using my computer to have a virtual machine to do whatever with. And yep. it was fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I was found... gonna ask you if Bloodhound was a personal experience or was that done at a work environment where- A work environment, it was fantastic because it was a work environment. Well, right. <laughs> All data. And this is kind of a message to those organizations, those higher ups, those managers, those CISOs, what you're doing in that lab is benefiting the whole organization. It's not you just tinkering with mm -hmm. it. You're building your 
skill craft, but you're also building the capabilities to go actually find this stuff in the wild. And, you know, it, it's really important to promote that kind of work and promote that kind of environment, I think. Um, because when you're done with work, and I know we mentioned it earlier that like you want people who go tinker, but people have lives and families and yeah. kids and yeah. dogs. And it's hard to then say, okay, I'm going to work from eight to eight or eight to six, go eat dinner with the family and then be able to cut out and do some of this stuff. But yeah. if you can yeah. do this in a work environment and you're promoted to do that work in a work environment, that's what makes work fun, right? I mean, you get yeah, um, I mean, deliverables it, you, that they don't understand. Yep. I feel like one of the things um, companies always seem to lack the understanding of, especially, and, and I'm sure it applies to other fields, but I've only worked really in cybersecurity or IT. Um, white space is so important for productivity. Uh, like, obviously, I've been in leadership roles for a lot. And so you just get saturated with meetings. And then it's like, well, you need to figure out how to get all this work done. Well, they just want you to delegate to people. But then those people then can't get their work done because they're doing your work because you have so many meetings. And it's like this problem that always can, like perpetuates. But like, you have a good cybersecurity professional, give them white space to do or work on whatever they need to or respond to the things they've been putting off. I mean, they'll produce more than someone that you mandate every minute of their day. Like it, it, it's because, and that's why I think it's so important to hire the right personalities um, in those positions and not the people that have like the 20 years of experience, but they only do things one way, right? Like that's not valuable. That's, that, that's a trade that's gonna die off for them, not, not carry forward, so. That's so. not passion anymore. That's I'm going to do it this way because I know exactly yeah. how it works and that's how I've always done it and it always works. That's not passion. That's repetition. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. If you beat that out, you're you're going to immediately start losing results. Um, like you said, playing with live data, actually being able to mess around with that. Yeah. We actually have a question. Um, yes. Now, I think we hit a, hit a lot up uh, or hit on the tools a lot. But the question is, what tools and skills should new members of the cybersecurity field be actively pursuing to best equip them for 2023? Ooh, um, that's a that's a great question. Yeah, wait, <laughs> wait, let's with something ask we're not Chat GPT. With. Yeah, no. Chat GPT. What do you say? No. Um, <laughs> so, best skills. Um, honestly, I've worked I've worked in this field. A while I'm trying to do the math in my head right Don't now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like probably 15 years or so, and I have found there's not necessarily new skills I've necessarily applied. I've just sharpened, if that makes sense, right? Because I feel like once you understand, uh, so hold on, let me. Um, I've got notes on something that kind of breaks out what I think are like the top skills that I think people oh. should focus on. Did you you came prepared? <laughs> uh, well, it was it was a, a, from a topic that we may or may not get to, but um, there are ten things, and I and I kind of put this together based on it. I got this based on academia, right? We're going to talk about what is good about academia, but what academia kind of misses because they don't always have these all together. But any program or any training or anything you want to develop to be a good security person, in my opinion, you need to understand these ten things. Um, network security. You need to understand how networks just work, right? Um, then not only that, you need to know how to do technical analysis. So you talk about like new skills, right? You need to be able to analyze log files, network traffic. You need to know what that looks like to use some of the 
pre-built baked in Linux type command line tooling and things to help you analyze data or other tools to help you like Excel is great for this, right? Fortunately, we use it too much in our field. Um, incident response, as far as like, what does incident response actually look like? Like identifying, responding, recovering, like what does the incident response really mean? Um, compliance and regulation, you need to understand to the point of what is actually important from like legal requirements, because in your day-to-day -day job as a security professional, you need to know how to um, incorporate those requirements as well as how it pertains to um, what it is you do on the day-to-day. -day. Like how do you make that, that uh, connection there? Risk management, I mean, security is risk. So if you don't understand risk management, um, then you don't really know how to address the problems correctly. Uh, malware analysis, I think, is a skill that is, you know, pertinent as far as malware is not going away. If you actually look at the number of samples of malware, I mean, it's just like an exponential curve increasing over time. So you don't have to be like the best malware analysis person, but you need to understand how to do some malware analysis. Cyber threat intelligence, if you don't know how to read intelligence, you're going to struggle. Um, and then identifying good or bad intelligence, uh, just so you know, communication is a great skill. I know I'm on number eight, Mike. I know you're getting impatient. I got two more after this. No, um, I was going to say drop that list. Drop that list. Yeah, I'll, I'll drop it. Um, so communication, right? Uh, like something that I think we struggle a lot on in our field is talking to different audiences. Um, so that's a skill I think that is important to be able to talk to technical people and management type people and common people, whatever you want to call them. Common kind of sounds insulting, but you know what I mean? Um, problem solving skills, right? Um, just the, like, how do you improve your problem solving skills? Like you should be able to critically think and create and come up with creative solutions. Like we talked about using this open source tooling, like Bloodhound and other things. I think that incorporates some problem solving because you're basically introducing a new idea, new set of data, and then trying to understand it. And then how can you effectively solve problems with it? Um, I think that's a good practice. And then forensics. I think forensics gives you all the knowledge for your environment or systems you're going to use on a day-to-day -to, -day to what's normal, what's not normal. Like forensics helps with that, also helps in response. Um, but those 10 areas, so I'll do my best to try to Man, blow this you in. you describe the unicorn employee for any organization, <laughs> right? And, and, and the Great. problem I have, like why I have this list is because academia maybe touches on two out of the 10. Like they don't hit the whole 10. Yeah. And I have a problem with that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I can kind of talk through my experience at academia. That master's program and degree I had didn't hold a candle to the three months internship I had at um, the first company yep. I worked at. Um, I th think it was more policy and the soft skills and some of the risk and management, but it wasn't the hard technical skills that you're talking about. I think there's a common thread between all of those. And I think, you know, you talked about those 10 skills. I think there's a lot you can do in your own time. And again, we talked about the home lab. That was one of the topics we were going to get to eventually um, in this podcast. But, you know, Wireshark, there's a lot of open source tools like Wireshark for network capture and um, Elastic for log gathering. And there's a bunch of open source malware detonation tools getting a grasp on those you're going to have a more fine-tuned skill set when you actually get to these these uh larger cots products like the edrs and the, uh, the sandboxing tools because to scott your point um i'm trying to think of a tool i don't want to pick on anybody but let's say you have a commercial off-the-shelf sandbox tool you're going to have the ability to upload something and get the report right 
But if you have that experience building your own home lab, you're now looking at, oh, here's the execution. Here's, what ha here's what's happening on the box. Here's what things I need to enable to make sure that malware is actually gonna run. So building it for yourself is gonna give you that real world experience where you're gonna be you know, above and beyond that experience level with some of these, the products and the tools and the capabilities um, of, of the tools and the people that you're potentially working with. Um, but I, I think the core tenant that is network endpoint, if you can understand network packet capture and that kind of data, and then you can understand things like Sysmon, that's a great, great, great base to then spread out and do a potentially bunch of different um, aspects within the cybersecurity field. That's and, and not to get on my soapbox, sorry, Lee. Um, no, you're good, you're good. <laughs> cybersecurity isn't just the technical part of it. There are amazing opportunities to go into cybersecurity from a sales position or a marketing position, or you know, we're, we're talking about it from a technical podcast perspective, but I've known people who have decent technical skills, but are able to translate that in a way that are enabling organizations, um, if you're on the sales side or consulting side, that it's really about those soft skills of translating the technical to the layman's term, right? So. If you're not super technical, if you, you struggle in some of those aspects, there's still ways that you can get into cybersecurity and make an amazing effect. Um, and it looks like we have another question. So Lee, I'll let you answer that one since you're the Sysmon um, Stan, I guess we'll call it. So I agree with you completely, Mike. I am the expert. No, um, network <laughs> and, and endpoint is, that's all I focused on. Um, and before I get to the question, fire up Wireshark. Um, it's the greatest, like just looking at it, um, half the battle is knowing what is in the log and what it looks like, right? You can't open up a PCAP and start hunting for anything unless you know like, all right, this is the information is telling me. And to go get on the soft skills, like you're saying, how can you describe why, what's in it and why it's important? That's huge. Uh, if you can start doing that, um, you know, you're set for now. Um, now, what is the best way to learn Sysmon? The best way to learn Sysmon is to go to the Microsoft Sys internal suite. Um, download, I, I download the whole suite because I liked all the tools that are in there. Uh, Process Explorer, Auto Runs, I can keep going. But um, I downloaded Sysmon. And because I had my home lab, um, I, well, so I guess there's two options. You can download it and install it um, it creates a service. It's not like a double click. You have to go in through command prompt and set it up. Once it installs, uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, once it installs, it now creates a log source uh, like repository in Windows Event Viewer. And that's where you can start poking around. Now, the problem with that is if you install it like standalone, it's not fully turned on. There are some things that are, uh, or there are things that you can configure that aren't turned on, but what you can do is you can go out and there are multiple Sysmon configuration files out there. Um, Swift, Swift on security put one together, that's really good. Um, but you basically, it's this XML, um, XML, yeah, right? Yeah, XML, yep. Yeah, uh, XML configuration, and you can go through and customize it as much as you want. So you want to say, if I want to ignore everything that comes from command.exe, you put it in a list and it excludes it. You'll never see it in event uh, or in Sysmon logs. 
the best way I learned was I threw in a completely bare um, com or I guess completely opened configuration file. <laughs> Once again, I was on my home lab. I was, you know, detonating malware and just blown away my VM. Um, but what I was able to see was I can start poking around and saying, all right, um, I see this a lot. What is this? And then you know, if you start taking like the biggest or the noisiest things, uh, and I know this is, I kind of got off my, off the topic of Syswam, but you see the loud hitters, you start saying, all right, let's research that. Why do I have to research it? Um, and then you move it out, right? You say, all right, I'm going to exclude that because I know this is this. Um, but for to learn Syswam, there's a lot of, um, there's not a lot of videos actually. When I was learning how to install it, there wasn't actually a lot, um, but maybe that's something I should do for the lab. Um, or a YouTube video or a TikTok. Would you watch it on TikTok if I put it together? No, yes or no? Yeah. Only for dancing. <laughs> I will I will download it to watch you dance and then delete it right away. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> so we have a I guess we can kind of follow up. There's another question on this. Um, what is better when you're two years in as a cybersecurity engineer? Um, military intel background, but no technical networking background. So it's either going small cybersecurity team, literally doing everything out of the sun, or going in and working for a security company, being an expert on a few things, starting off as a tier one analyst. My experience, and y'all two have been, I guess, have y'all been tier one analysts? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I've well, never like been a tier one analyst. I remember, Going to, after my internship, um, somebody we both know sat me down and was like, all right, do you want to go in the SOC and be an analyst or you want to be an engineer? And I was like, I want to be an engineer. And that was probably the best choice I've ever made for myself, um, <laughs> personally. Well, right? I think it's because I come to look at engineers and how they utilize them, but go ahead. I got my take <laughs> on that. Um, I think this yeah, is split sorry. and I'll, I'll talk about it from my experience and I would love to hear Scott and Lee's experience on this. Um, I think being exposed to as much stuff as possible mm -hmm. allows you to understand what you're good at, what you don't like, um, and then you can build your areas of expertise and then go on and do something else, right? Um, you're in every conversation when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, you have the kind of the institutional knowledge. Um, you understand the landscape and the organization better. Again, you, you, you called out things like vulnerability management, patching, pen testing, incident response, project management. It's a stressful job because um, a lot of it's on your back, but that gives you the ability to really kind of cover the basis of everything. And now in your next job, maybe you're just gonna go be a pen tester, or maybe you're gonna go be an analyst somewhere else, but you understand the that landscape, the networking, the EDR side, the IR side. Um, and so from my perspective as an engineer, not, pigeonholed into one specific thing like um, ITSM, or not ITSM, excuse me, but like uh, SCCM or package management. Um, I was lucky enough to own all of the engineering and a little bit of the product and the customer. So it's really just about growing that experience and getting exposed to as much as you can. So I've heard so, tier one analysts that are just ticket jockeys all day long. So anyway, yeah. Scott, so, what's you? So here's my take on the whole engineer versus analyst thing. Um, I feel like 
when you hire in, especially in an established security operation, if you hire into the lowest place, it's hard to move up. Like people have got to get removed from the higher positions. So you run into that, but that's really good experience. I feel like some of the best security people or IT people start in help desks, right? They get so much exposure to so many different things and they become a better IT professional. And if they go into security, even a better security professional because of that exposure. And they also make really good connections because someone always remembers the person to fix their stuff from like a senior level, right? So be that guy. Um, but uh, the engineering role, I don't feel like if you can land an engineering role, I feel like it's a very learnable role if you have the skills or not to do the mundane day-to-day. But if you want to do new and improving and, you know, profound things as an engineer, that's where the talent really comes into play. Um, so I feel like... If Are you, you saying that I don't have talent? Is that what you're saying? I feel like you just called out engineers, man. You have talent. I've worked with your watch people. Now. Hang it up, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> You got some work to do. No, no, like the, the, uh, I've, I've worked with some engineers I where I was frustrated as an analyst because I knew I needed things fixed and they couldn't fix them for me. And that's not a very comfortable place to be in, right? When you're like, yeah. gosh, they are the people that should have the skills or the desire. And I'm the one that does. Like, you don't want to and, be in that position. And they're typically like, no, I'm not going to yeah, do it. Yeah, they're they like, they're very much. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I get it. But, but like, yeah, I, like my so what makes my experience growing up in the security professional i think unique but i i loved it so much was military i mean you're a help desk junkie even though you're commo so i had the whole help desk ish right um then when i worked at the university i was security everything i was writing policies i was doing incidents i was mm. um doing all sorts of various secure vulnerability management whatever it was i had like everything and i had no experience in any of it so kind of like trial by fire, but I got exposed to a lot really fast to help me decide what I wanted to do. I think that's why it's important to get exposed to a lot. The SOC experience that Lee and I both had, it was very unique because it was it was a new SOC and we got to build it from the ground up. So we didn't get tied to these titles, these roles, these specific responsibilities. And that I think made, I, I still think today, the SOC that First Energy is a phenomenal SOC as far as talent and process because we built what made sense and we kind of pushed out those common SOC models that Deloitte and other types of companies kind of push. And I mean, I ended up managing that SOC. And so I know from the metrics why we were so successful, but but that let us explore and do the things that made sense and empowered a lot of people to do more than just, you have this title, this role, these responsibilities. It was It was very open. When we talk about interns and things, that was the one thing when it came from I had three interns. One of them went to go work for uh, Mandiant, Amazon, and SpaceX. And these kids didn't come from the best security program school, but they had the right environment to learn. And we exposed them to all the right things and they were successful. And to me, that speaks a lot to what experience you expose yourself to. Like you don't want to get a position where you, you pigeonhole yourself so much, especially starting out. Um, but just know that if you get that tier one level position, plan to move to another company because it's really hard to promote up like you might still be able to but just know that going into it that you might need to make a move somewhere else before coming back just that's just normal um i so i just thought of something to encapsulate that list that you posted or that we posted on the discord um being really good at google i think is a a huge win (laughs) 
if I didn't have Google, if I didn't have the, that ability to research things I did not know, I wouldn't have the job I have today. So it's a lot of that critical thinking skills that I think you mentioned earlier, Scott. How well can you chat GPT? How well can you chat GPT? <laughs> That's the Let the thing. AI just build your career for you, right? <laughs> hey, you know, it, it is crazy. So think about it like, and I can't say that like, so my experience was different. You know, I started out as a network guy and came as a SOC or a tier one analyst. so hard to make him come to security. It was uh, so hard. <laughs> um, and, but the thing was like, and it's a hard question because as a SOC one analyst, I was exposed to a lot. I, ha I dealt with mm -hmm. the governance team. I dealt with the, um, what do we call them? The, uh, like the guys that ran the firewalls. Like I still had to talk to them and I had to like dabble. So I could have sat there and you had a lot of opportunities. And then within the SOC itself, we had, um, you know, we had uh, digital forensics. We had that type of capabilities. So the only reason I would say um, go the SOC analyst route is because there are so just being a tier one analyst opens you up to so many cap or uh, so many niches, so many skills and aspects of cybersecurity that you have to learn. You can't investigate something and say, well, you know, I didn't know what was going on, so I just closed it. You know, you have to talk to someone who's going to mm -hmm. teach you, or if they don't teach you, um, you know, you're going to have to Google it yourself, uh, which it forces you to learn. Uh, it, I, and in my opinion, I was forced to find my passion, which was great. Um, I guess force is a rough word one, there, but <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say one of, one of the ways that I determine I've like overstayed my welcome is when I feel like I stopped offering value to whatever position I'm in, right? Um, and like from like a SOC analyst, like a, like I know SOC analysts, like security is very common to get burnout, right? Especially in different yeah. roles. Um, and I feel like when you're working in it, like say if you're a SOC one analyst and you realize that you're closing the same tickets, that you can't change and they keep happening and you and you know exactly what's happening at the great understanding, but nothing's changing and you can't improve the process. You don't either have the buy-in to prove the process, the whatever, and you're not adding any more value other than that. That's that's kind of your sign to say, I need to either like try to move up, move somewhere else or, move, or do something different. Um, because, and, and that's with security, there's so much to learn and so much value that you can add. Um, so when you find yourself not adding value, you know there's something wrong. Yeah. You've either matured, outgrown your position, that kind of thing. So I, I look at that as a great uh, indicator of that. And, yeah, and I would take a look at the environment that you're in, because I think you mentioned earlier, Scott, having those mentors. I remember yeah. being at my very first organization and having guys come back to the SOC and sit down and just talk to me. And that was huge, right? These guys, we kind of looked at as like the experts, the the unicorns of their space, and they would take time just to have chats about security or technology or whatever but like it gives you that ability to like okay i can get to that place right um these people are giving me a little bit of their expertise i think everybody's trying to be the smartest in the room sometimes in cybersecurity. um yeah. <laughs> i think you got to let go of that ego a little bit because yeah. if everybody's better we're all better for it right. um, well then you don't have to work as hard like what's the word there's always that one <laughs> hero right. Right. And if he doesn't right. share his knowledge, he always has to be the hero, which is great, but he has to do all the work too. Yep. And We're if all that the same, leaves, you could delegate. You're kind of, you're well, kind of, yeah, the whole org, org screwed on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. actually, one of the, so the whole idea of, you know, if he was not adding value, 
one of the reasons I came to Cyborg was I, I was like, I want to do this, this, and this. This is my passion. You know, I have this home lab set up. It's not that great. It was like a single Dell server. And I was a little hesitant because, you know, I was like, well, you know, I just made a career change, you know. And I was like, this is what I want to do. They're like, we have a lab that does all <laughs> this. It's all set up. And I was like, I think I even asked someone. I was like, can I come and play and just detonate? They're like, please do it. And I was like, okay. You know, so like, one, I know my passion is logs. Two, you're put, you're giving me a lab environment that has nothing but logs. And you're saying, this is what you need to do. I was like, like, yeah. finding that like right environment. Thing. Yeah, oh, please, yeah, I continue so breaking. Don't, don't break stuff, it's fine. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, like that's the best going thing. to break like, things. It's just whether or not he's allowed to or not is different. Yeah, yeah like yeah. no way. And, right? <laughs> and you don't have to wear a pager and respond to alerts. Absolutely, so and it's just it was just ask those <laughs> questions when you're when you're trying to go somewhere for your passion. Ask them. Be like, say like, and you don't. I'm not saying you have to have this three year plan. I'm saying this is what you want to do. Tell them your passion. Say I, this is what I like to do. Can I do it here? Will you support me? If they're like, no, well, then you might just have a lateral movement. You might make some more money, but if you're doing the same thing in the same or in a different environment, all you did was move laterally. If you find yeah. an environment where you ask those questions, can I do this? Can I do this? Can you just and support me in it? And they say, yes, those those are the wins. That's what you want to look for. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we're running up on time. Um, okay. I think, uh, Lee, I think you're running the workshop um, February 8th. Uh, 12 to 1. You want to give a little bit more detail around it? Yep. So this time we're focusing on credential access. Um, so we've been going through the different MITRE tactics. Um, if you were at the last one, it will be kind of the same setup. We're going to go through two hunts. Um, we're going to use the Hunter platform as our beginning or as our start for the hunt. And then I'll guide you through some pivots. Um, and really the pivots where the threat hunting really comes out, where you can find those unique artifacts and you can build the relationships and you know tell the story. Um, we'll be, as always, we'll be getting the video, we'll get be getting the recording if you miss it, you get all the workshop um, materials, you get the um, OVA, you get the uh, artifact sheet, and we give that uh, for you everything. So please come join us, uh, it's always a good time. Um, I like hearing feedback as well. So if you enjoyed it, let me know. If there are things I can improve on, please. Um, I've, I lost my ego forever ago uh in cybersecurity so like i'm not worried uh just let us know yeah yeah so one of the things i think a poll question will hit but let us know if you've tried the ransom note uh and you liked it i i honestly of all the drinks we've put up i think this is my favorite it's probably nice. why we've talked so much and got completely off topic on what we were planning on talking <laughs> about but that that makes it great That's right funny. and i hey i mean there's great participation too and all that so i loved it um, the, the next live episode drink will be the Cyber Sentinel. It's a whiskey-based drink, so just look for that. You know, it'll be showing up when we post that. So I just want to thank everyone for joining. Once again, love talking shop with friends and colleagues. Please, if you like what you hear, check us out in the Apple Podcast, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to the podcast and give us good reviews. You know, the more visibility you create that way helps others find this. It also helps us out as well. And then if you outside the live podcast we have our 30 minute it's not really 30 minutes it actually goes longer now but a little longer than 30 minute episodes for the five breaking news topics for the for the week usually on wednesdays so we talk about some pretty interesting things hopefully touch on some technical things and check us out so happy hunting everyone thanks for joining thanks, us everybody. everyone 
Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.